Well, good morning, Harvest. Like Pastor Tim said, my name is Mitch Tucker, and I am the high school pastor here. And I tell you, I am humbled, and I'm excited. I'm excited for the opportunity to, to bring the word this morning. So let's dig in. So it was a few months ago, I was having a conversation with a young man who had just started a relationship with a young lady. And he had mentioned that he had a date the coming weekend. So naturally, I asked the question, well, what's the plan? What are you going to do on this date? And so I remember he, he looked straight at me and he said, Mitch, here's my plan. We're going to go to a quiet coffee shop and we're going to put a puzzle together. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what a horrible, horrible plan. <laughs> You've got about half right, son. Um, I, I get the, the, the quiet part. You can, you can have a conversation. You can get to know each other a little bit better. I, I definitely understand the coffee part as well. I've had two cups already this morning. But, but, the, but a puzzle. I have to admit, I, I don't get puzzles at all. Now, I understand the concept of it. You have a 1,000 pieces or 100 pieces, and you're trying to put together um, one picture that makes sense. I get the concept of a puzzle, but I don't get the concept of, a, of putting together a puzzle for fun. Or, or enjoyment. It's, it's torture for me. It's, it's this, this forced discipline of patience, right? Now, I'm going to raise my hand to this because I am the puzzle putter together. That's a real thing. Putter together. Uh, that you have that one piece, and it seems like every single side fits this one part, right? But it, it doesn't fit. And so I'm that person that uh, tries to dis distract uh, who else is, is putting the, together the puzzle with me? And I do one of these. Poof, all right, all right. Anyone else ever done that before? <laughs> and obviously, I, I've ruined the puzzle. <laughs> the cardboard is is bent, and I know that there are some puzzle people in this room, and I I apologize. Um, but the reason why I bring up puzzles is not so that you you all know my severe dislike of of puzzles, but in our passage this morning. We're forced to ask several questions. One of those questions is this. How does God lead us? How does he give us direction? Is he like a confusing puzzle where he just puts a thousand different pieces out on the floor and, and, and does he say, okay, just best of luck to you. Try to figure out how to put these things together to make sense of it. Or is his direction and his guidance, is it clear? And is it true? And is it in the name of, of Jesus Christ? And it's full of truth and full of his grace and full of his love for you and for me. Well, let's dig in. If you're not already there, uh, open up to your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to finish out chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. And here's our first point this morning. An open door is not the only measure of God's plan. Follow as he leads. So let's walk through this. When I, that's Paul, came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me and the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, if you've been here for the last couple weeks, you've you heard Pastor Kent and Pastor Tim, and they've been talking about Paul's frustration in his, his travel plans. He's been making plans. He wants, he wants to see these Corinthians. He's just uh, sent a, a pretty harsh, a pretty severe letter. And he has no clue how it's been received. 
Did they, did they harden themselves to Paul himself and to his message, or, or did they see it with an open mind, and they've truly considered the correction and the discipline that he put in this letter? He has no clue, and he's sitting on pins and needles, but nothing's going right for him. All of his circumstances and all of his plans, they just, they get thrown out the window, and it, it just adds on to this in verses 12 and 13, he he travels to this, this city of, of Troas, and he's got an open door, which means there's an opportunity. He has some sort of invitation to go and preach the gospel, and he's excited for that. He's excited to go into this city and have this opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. But he gets there, and one of his, his big reasons for getting into this, this city is because that's the plan. That's the plan to meet Titus there. And Titus is coming from Corinth. And Titus has the answer. Titus knows how this church in Corinth has, has received this severe letter. So Titus is going to come. And most likely he also has a financial gift to give to Paul to help out with travel expenses. But Titus doesn't show up at the appointed time. And so Paul's forced to what do I do? I've got, this, I've got this opportunity, but I'm supposed to meet Titus here. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm dying to know what's going on in this church in Corinth. I love these, these people so much. And, and where's my brother? Did, did he get mugged? Is he left half dead somewhere? And he has no peace. He has unrest in his spirit. And so the direction is not to stay here. And continue to walk through this open door, this opportunity to preach the, the gospel in this city, but it's to move on to Macedonia. Have you ever been there before? You make plans. You have this agenda that you, you think that everything is going to go this, this certain way. But when reality hits, nothing goes the way that you planned it. You have all these questions, but you have so very few answers. You can't go backwards, you can't stay where you're at, you don't really want to go forward, and you get frustrated. So verse 13, Paul is at the end of his rope. He's been talking about it for about a chapter and a half, and he's at the end of his rope of despair. Now once we get to, to verse 14, there's going to be a giant shift of mindset but let's just take some time at the end of Paul's rope and ask the question, how does God give us direction? How does he reveal his will? Well, I wrote down seven things. There's seven ways or sources of how God reveals his will to us. Now, if you've been here at Harvest for a number of years, this, this list might look a little bit familiar because Pastor Tim has walked through this list as well, but I thought it very appropriate since actually two of these, the list of seven, is in just the two verses that we read so far. So seven places or ways that God reveals his will. Number one, big shocker, right? His word. Right? It is a light for our feet and a guide for our path. He gives us guidance and direction and truth, and we walk in it. Number two, wise counsel of other godly people. Now let's take note, that, that doesn't mean... We just re re openly receive any type of counsel. Right, but this is wise counsel of other godly people. And, and the Lord most definitely uses other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He puts them in our path and uses them 
to guide us in his will and his plan. Number three, personal passions and gifts. Personal passions and gifts. The Lord has given us those gifts and he he wants to, to lead us and guide us by serving him and serving others with those gifts. Number four, this is in the passage, open or closed doors. Open or closed doors. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation. Or the opposite, it's when that opportunity ceases to exist, right? The Lord uses both of those. Number five, this is also in the passage, leading of spirit. Leading of spirit. So there's a, there's a peace that's there to continue to go forward, or there's, again, the opposite. There's an unrest. There's a lack of peace. The Lord directs in that. Number six, and maybe, maybe number six is the, uh, the one that's overlooked, all right, the most often, and that is simply just common sense. Well, what's the, what's the basic, the, the most obvious answer to the question? Common sense. And number seven, simply just staying true to your commitments. You've made a commitment, and to stay true to your commitments. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, I, I absolutely love VBS week. My wife Sarah and I, uh, we are leading about 3,000 first graders for the next four days. First graders. It's going to be awesome. I'm already tired. <laughs> but it's going to be great. And VBS is so much fun. And Pastor Tim, is, he's, he's right. That it is an awesome time as, as adults and as volunteers. There's something that the Lord does when we serve together that, that binds us and unites us together in the name of Jesus. And so I'm definitely looking forward to the next few days. One of the other reasons why I love VBS is because it's an opportunity for me to celebrate my anniversary here. Because my first day on staff was the first day of VBS of 2014, right? It was awesome. The first day that I started here, I got a free t-shirt. It said, game on. I'm like, this church is great. My first day I get a t-shirt. And so what I did this week is, is I looked at this list of seven, and I went back three years as my anniversary of, of being here on staff, and I just spent some time between myself and the Lord and, and just celebrated and remembered how he guided my family and I to move from Iowa to here. This is my hometown. I, I was born and raised in Groveland, and I have to admit, there were a number of years that my wife Sarah and I, we, we had conversations about where perhaps the Lord would call us. And we, we said several times, we don't know for sure, but we're going to guess he's not going to call us back to central Illinois. Well, little do we know that that was definitely in his plans. So if you wouldn't mind, I would just love to, to walk you through just a little bit of, of that story using that, this list or, or at least five of those. So the first one, stay true to my commitments. I was a youth pastor in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for nine years. And so when I interviewed for that position, they asked me, if we're going to hire you on, we're going to ask for a commitment of five years. Well, I'd been there for nine. So check number one, right? I'd stayed true to that commitment. Check number two, personal passions and gifts. My position in Iowa uh, was both for junior high and in high school. Now, you're just going to maybe have to take my word for it, but junior high ministry and high school ministry, although their ages are, are fairly close together, very, very different. Very, very different distinctives of, of, of how you teach and how you walk through life with a junior hire and a high schooler who's about to go off to college or their armed services. 
And so through those nine years, I realized that my passions and my gifts for the distinctives of junior high ministry, they were starting to decline. But my passions and gifts that the Lord was instilling within me for the distinctives of high school ministry, well, that was, that was continuing to, to rise and to elevate. And so perhaps the Lord is going to open up an opportunity where I can just focus on high school ministry. So check number two, check number three was the open door. I had a a good friend who was uh, one of my, my summer interns, and he became a youth pastor at a harvest church in Ohio. And so frequently we would exchange ideas, and I would call him up, and I would be on uh, his website to check out what he was doing. And I thought just randomly one, uh, one time of, hey, I wonder what other harvest pastors that maybe I know or that I, I went to, to school with. So I went on a website that had a lot of information of the 100-plus harvest churches in, in the world. And there was a little link that said employment. So I thought, hey, let me just click on it. So I clicked on it right at the top. It was Harvest Bible Chapel Peoria High School Pastor. And I still had my resume on, on, a, on a floppy disk. Many people in this room don't know what that is. <laughs> All right? And so I thought, I want to actually have to find a computer that's going <laughs> to let me put this disk in. So before I did that, I just called up Pastor Tim. And I said, Pastor, so what, what, are you, what are you looking for? What, what's the fit? And I don't even remember if you remember this, this conversation, but we had a few people in our past that we, we, we knew, and we, so we, we started a friendship from that, that first phone call, that first conversation. So there was an open door, check number three. Check number four, wise counsel of other godly people. So Sarah and I, we, we, we picked four individuals or couples, and we sat down and we said, well, here's the opportunity, and here's... Here's where I think that the Lord's leading. What, what do you think? So I called up my oldest brother, who's a senior pastor just outside of Indianapolis. And I said, Matt, you know, what do you think about this? I had a, a longtime accountability partner who was on staff with me in, in Iowa, and uh, he eventually took a senior pastor role at another church. And so I, we, we called uh, him up and his wife, and we sat down with, with them as we, we actually visited them and said, what, what do you think? We had an older mentor couple that had walked through uh, us a few rocky parts of, of our marriage and so had already done some life with us and knew, knew our hearts and we, we talked about the opportunity with them. And then I called up the head of the, the youth ministry department, my old youth professor, his name's Bob McCray at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And I said, Bob, what do, you, what do you think? And all four of those sources, they said the same thing. I said, Mitch, Sarah, it, it seems as if the Lord's been pretty clear here. He wants you to take this opportunity and walk through this open door. So check number four. And check number five, we came here on a Sunday, and we were tried to be as inconspicuous as possible. That didn't work because I went to high school with a number of people in this room. But I remember we, we sat in this section way up there, and, and Pastor Tim was going through uh, his Roman series. And so Pastor Tim, he was not just going deep, but he was going gospel deep. We sent our, our kids off to higher ground, and to be honest, we had no clue what their report was going to be, just as Paul had, had no clue what the Corinthians report was going to be. But our kids came back, and they're like, this is awesome. Higher ground is so much fun, and I learned so much. And so there was a peace, and there was rest that the Lord was directing and leading to walk through this open door, this opportunity, and to become part of the staff here and Harvest Bible Chapel Peoria, and the Lord's blessings are incredible. But what about you? 
What's your circumstance? What's your situation that you're facing, that you're at the end of your rope? Just as Paul has all of these questions with so very, very few answers, what's going on in your life? What's your situation? Is it something that, that maybe it's a change of, of position or job or career? Maybe it's a, a decision that you're, you're just mulling over regarding a relationship or, or, a, or a lack of relationship, and you're, you're asking the Lord, where are you guiding me in this? Where are you taking me with this? Perhaps it's a health concern for you or for a loved one. Just take a moment now. Write it down if, you need to. if, it's, if it's obvious, that's fine. Just take a moment, what, what, what is your circumstance? That you're at the end of your rope. You've made so many plans and none of it fall, falls into place. And you're forced to ask the question, Lord, where are you taking me on this? Where are you leading? Where are you guiding? So as Paul gets to the end of his rope, he has a, a choice to make. He can continue to go down this road of despair and all these questions, and he gets frustrated with the lack of answers. Or he could cling to Jesus Christ and fix his mind and his hope upon him. So that brings us to our second point this morning. Allow God to lead you, and through you, spread the sweet fragrance of the gospel. Starts out in verse 14 with the word but. It's a transition word. His mindset has been focused on all of his circumstances, and he's, just, he's stressing out about it. He's on pins and needles. What's going on with the Corinthian church? And where's my brother Titus? Did something, something happen to him? But it's as, as if he pauses for a moment on the, at the end of his rope, and he's he thinking, wait, wait a minute. There's something, there's a bigger reality here. But thanks be to God because who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Now Paul is, is using a metaphor here. And so, as quickly as I can, let me explain what, what's going on. But it's a metaphor that the Corinthian church would be well acquainted with. The metaphor is a procession called a Roman triumph. And there's, there were hundreds of them, but it went something like this. A Roman general would go off into a foreign land, and they would be victorious in battle. And they would bring the spoils of war, and especially specific captives, with them back to Rome. And the general would put himself up high on an ornate or golden chariot led by four horses. And he would lead in a triumphal procession his captives throughout the streets of Rome as his soldiers are behind him cheering him on. Look what my general did. Now the metaphor is obvious of where Jesus Christ is at. Jesus Christ is the one leading. All right? It says that he always leads us in triumphal. How often does he lead us? Always. Always. There's not a moment, there's not a time where he has to take a nap or take a break. You've asked too many questions. Where are you leading me, Lord? And we always, he always leads us. But I spent considerable time this week 
trying to figure out where would Paul put himself. And I'll be honest, I wanted to put Paul with the fellow soldiers who were victorious in battle or just cheering on the general. But the more I read of where he's going in the book of 2 Corinthians and the more we know about Paul's story himself, it was apparent to me that he would actually put himself in the position of the captive slave. Because there was definitely a point in Paul's life where he came before the Lord and said, Jesus, Lord, I give up. I surrender, and I surrender completely to you. No longer am I going to lead my own life and follow my own guidance, but I'm completely surrender to yours. Lord, you've got my entire life. You have my heart. You have my soul. You have taken me captive, and I'm going to follow you wherever it is that you want to take me. So Paul would put himself in the position of the captive slaves, but in Let's grasp this. Because this is where the metaphor takes a, a different turn than a, a Roman triumph. Now the commander of the general would be leading these captive slaves to jail or to their death. But this is our God. He takes the captive slaves, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, they have confessed him as Lord of their life, and he says, Paul, or a fellow believer, I'm not only going to lead you always, but I'm going to use you. And I'm going to use you, I'm calling you to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And as this happens, God the Father is well pleased through his son Jesus Christ as he watches the fruits of his son's sacrifice spread the sweet, sweet aroma of the death-defeating gospel. And it's at this moment where, where, where Paul is, is just so overcome by this death or, or life message as it reflects upon what would typically happen at these, these Roman triumphs and, and uh, along the side, priests would hold up burning incense and it would be the same smell to the captives. They would smell the same thing that would remind them of their coming death. But the exact same smell as it spread out to the crowd and to the victor himself and to the soldiers, the same smell reminded them of life. And in a similar way, Paul says, the same message of the gospel to those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord of their life, is simply just a reminder of their coming death. But to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, they have confessed him as Lord of their life, that the message of the gospel is so precious and so sweet. And it's at the weight of this that he, he cries out this question, who is sufficient for these things? Who has broad enough shoulders to, to hold the weight of this death or life message? Simply, obviously, no mere mortal. Then he wraps up as a, in a reminder to the Corinthians. says, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God and the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He reminds the Corinthians, Hey, we, we, we all know so many people 
that they might have the name of Jesus Christ in their message, but it's not the message of Jesus Christ at all. It's their own message, and it's to elevate themselves. And they figure to, to gain off it, and probably in this case, financially. But Corinthians, you know my motivation, and you know my heart, and you know that God has put his stamp of approval upon my ministry. And I speak not to elevate myself, but I, I speak the truth of the gospel to elevate Jesus Christ and to him alone. I preach the gospel with a clear conscience. And so we have Paul. He's been walking this way, just consumed and stressed out by his circumstances. And he gets to the end of his rope, and he admits, you know what, I still have so many questions and so few answers, but... I, don't, I might not know those answers, but I do know this. I do know who the victor is. And I do know who has control of my life. And so I'm going to choose to cling to Jesus Christ and to cling to the hope and the reality and the fact that he is in control. He has promised to always lead me in a triumphal procession, in a victorious parade, and I am all in with Jesus Christ. In spite of the lack of answers, I do know this, and it always trumps whatever's going on in my life. I want to read just something, something that, that I wrote back, actually back in February of, of this year, and a couple warnings before, before I read it. Number one, this was, this was never really meant to... To be read in public, this was just something that, that, that I did as, uh, as an exercise um, just in my personal relationship with the Lord, just a, a time of remembrance and of how the Lord has, has guided myself and, 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 and my family. So this is a letter to my younger self. And so I, I chose the age of my six-year-old self. You'll, you'll know here in, in a moment, that is when I put my trust in Jesus Christ as as a six-year-old. And so I'm writing as a 36-year-old 30 years ago to my, to my younger self. So that's the first thing that you, you need to know, or the letter's not going to make any sense. And the second thing that you need to know is that in, in my personal relationship with the Lord, as, as I'm talking to him, grammar is optional. Okay? <laughs> so if you're one of those people who have already offended you with puzzles, um, and I have the possibility to offend you with, with poor grammar, all right, let's just, just keep that in mind. Well, this is what it says. Dear Mitch, you're a lot skinnier than you are now at 36. When you get to high school, you'll drink chocolate protein shakes and do other things to get physically bigger. But all it will do is make your face break out and you'll lose two pounds. <laughs> so just to let you know, at 36, you won't have to do anything really to get bigger. It'll just happen. But let's go back even further than high school. Let's go back to where you're at now as a six-year-old. It will be on a Sunday afternoon. Your biggest change in your life will occur. You might not remember tons of specifics, but later in life, you will drive around with the seat cover in your trunk of where you were sitting that day. It will be then you will trust Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And as much as a six-year-old can grasp, you will understand that you were a sinner that Jesus paid the price for those sins with his own life and rose from the dead. And you will confess Jesus is Lord of your life. 
From then on, you will be sealed forever with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your eternal life with the Lord forever. You will have days you will doubt this truth. But remember the simplicity of your childlike faith and cling to Christ. He gave you everything. Never forget, this is the most important and exciting day of your entire life. But Mitch, when you enter junior high as an ultra-skinny seventh grader with a giant head, <laughs> your faith will be put on the line. You'll be tempted by things that look so attractive and important at the time, things like popularity and social rank, and for the first major time in your life, you try living your life only for yourself and not as a thank you note to God. This will go on for over five years. It will be a waste, man. You, receive, you will receive a piece of social recognition as you were voted by your graduating class the funniest male when you're a senior. You'll realize that when you follow after the world instead of Jesus, the end result is emptiness and loneliness and simply your name on a piece of paper. Don't waste away those precious junior high and high school days because you can't get those back. The Lord has called you as part of his perfect plan to be in that school with those people for his purposes, not your own. A couple years later, you'll find yourself in downtown Chicago at Moody Bible Institute getting a degree in youth ministry. There, your knowledge and passion for the Bible will grow in leaps and bounds. You'll have some speed bumps along the way, but it will be one of the best times of your life. You'll also be introduced to the second Biggest blessing of your life while you're in Chicago. You'll have to wait a while for her as she'll be with someone else and will be engaged for a short time to someone else. But just be patient, brother. You'll have relationships with other girls before Sarah, but this one will be completely different. Instead of you trying to control things, you will have learned by your junior year what it looks like to trust Christ with your relationships and seek peace in his will. Just enjoy the ride the Holy Spirit has you on with this beautiful girl. She will rock you and bring you closer in your relationship with the Lord. Miraculously, she will marry you early June after you both graduate. Neither of you will have jobs, but you won't really care. <laughs> You'll spend a short time being humbled by working at a pig farm. Work hard. This experience will give you a deeper appreciation of where the Lord will take you. In 2005, the Lord will take you to the state of Iowa. And I know what you're thinking. Iowa may be the most boring place in America. And it might be, but it will be a great place where the Lord will bring you your family. It will be during this family phase, the Lord will bring some of your deepest joys and painful trials. Before you have your first child, you will go through a painful time of infertility. Sarah will get pregnant, though. We'll go to our first OB appointment and leave so excited. We'll go shopping for our baby's first outfit and all see the delight on my bride's face. Sarah will lose the baby, though. And for the first time, you will feel the reality that you are not enough 
for Sarah. You won't be able to do anything or say anything that will make the hurt go away from her, and you will feel powerless. But stay strong in the Lord, though, during this time, because you will find it's true that when the Bible says that when we are weak, he is strong. You'll realize that it's true that you will never be enough for your wife, but that's actually good because Jesus Christ is for her. The Lord will use this disappointment to add to your faith and add depth to your marriage. Eventually, you will have your first son, Mason, and you will have no clue what to do with a newborn. But just calm down. The Lord has brought you through everything else, and he will continue to. That kid will only want to be held by you, and you'll become great at holding your son with one arm and eating popcorn with the other. Shortly after Mason will come your second son, Levi. The Lord will allow perhaps the greatest hardship of your young life. Even before you leave the hospital. But it will also be what the Lord uses as one of his greatest proofs of his faithfulness. Levi will be born with a birth defect. He'll be born with cataracts. He'll spend the next several months and really his first four years at the University of Iowa Children's Hospital. There you will send off your, your tiny son off for many very touchy surgeries. But you will also have the opportunity to tell doctors and nurses and other families going through similar things the hope that you have in Jesus Christ alone. You will get really good at putting tiny eye contacts into a one-month-old several times a day. You'll be on your hands and knees many times, looking on the carpet or the floor of your van for a, a tiny blue or green contact. Most of the time you will find them, but sometimes Levi will eat them and you'll find it in his diaper. <laughs> Even those contacts are expensive, throw those contacts away. <laughs> Although hard, the Lord will carry you all along, and especially Levi. He'll be fine, and he will be able to see. With some hesitancy on your part, the Lord will bring your final two little guys, Gabe and Cole, who have great vision, the Lord's blessings are tremendous. In 2014, the Lord will call you back to Illinois to Harvest Bible Chapel, Peoria, and you will have a blast with the high schoolers there, who you will love almost as much as you love your own kids. So Mitch, while you're going through this, remember a few things. You have the tendency to try to control. You have the tendency to lose your patience. The truth is, you gave the control of your life to Christ when you were six. God's plan is much better than your plan. Enjoy the life 
the Lord has for you through the many ups and downs. Worship him above all. He is faithful no matter what. So this morning, where are you at? About 15 minutes ago, you thought about a circumstance or a situation or you wrote it down. That situation that you have, you've been walking that road for such a long time. And you're at the end of your rope, just as Paul is at the end of his rope. Just like Paul, you have the decision. You have the option. You can continue to go down where this, this rope takes you. Takes you to loneliness and despair. And you can continue to just dwell on your lack of answers. Or right now, you can turn and you can hold up that situation to the one and only conqueror of your soul and say I'm trusting in you I'm trusting in you to, to, to guide me in this I'm trusting in you and you alone to lead me through this pain and this trial and this frustration We're about to sing a song. The title of it is, This We Know. And as Paul walks down this road, this rope of, of despair, he gets to the end. He doesn't know a lot of the answers. But he turns and he faces his victor. And he says, but this I know. I know who my Savior is. And I'm going to rest in him. <laughs>